All right, welcome to a listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. We have been working through this Gospel, trying to really understand Luke's presentation of Jesus. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. And it's really the setup for Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just set it in context here. And first, let's recall where we're at in Luke's Gospel, that Luke... Uh, has this large section here from the middle of chapter 4 through most of chapter 9 where he's focusing on Jesus' ministry primarily in and around Galilee. And so we're in the region of Galilee during that time period early on in Jesus' ministry before Luke tells us about him heading up to Jerusalem. In the context of Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry has been expanding and growing. He's been announcing the kingdom of God and teaching people and healing people and calling disciples to himself. And opposition to him and to his ministry has already begun to develop, particularly from some of the ultra-conservative religious leaders for whom Jesus' ministry and message just don't fit the bill. And so opposition is growing. Now it's time to really move things forward in Jesus' mission and ministry and designate official representatives for his kingdom mission. And in that setting, here's what happens. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer with God. This is, uh, seems like just sort of almost a passing statement, not directly related to what follows. And yet, even though it's sort of a transitional statement, it is absolutely critical on two fronts. One, it seems to indicate that Jesus knew what he was about to do in designating official representatives was so central. This required significant time and prayer to discern and to make sure he got this right. And so Jesus, before he designates these representatives, he spends the entire night in prayer with God. Uh, He got away from the crowds. He got away from his disciples. He got away to be alone with God for Uh, an extended period of time to really get his mind and his heart clear and set uh, and to really get direction from his father for this moment. That suggests this is a big deal. Second, uh, this is a, a big deal for us just to pay attention to verse 12 because it reminds us of Jesus's habit of prayer. This is something that Luke emphasizes all throughout his gospel. We'll see moments like this where Jesus gets away. We've already seen some earlier in the gospel. We see this here. Jesus has a very deep and well-formed habit of prayer. That's indicated by the fact that he can spend the whole night in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, I just know me quite well, and even though I've walked with Jesus for over 30 years, I have a pretty well-developed personal devotion time in, in the mornings I get up and I read some scripture and pray, and I've done that for a long time. I don't think I can spend five, six, seven straight hours praying. Jesus is so skilled at prayer. He is so well-developed in prayer that for him to spend an, 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 a large block of prayer like this all night long uh, tells us about his habit of prayer. And as his disciples, uh, this is instructive to us. One, about the importance of uh, imitating Jesus' pattern of prayer. 
and two, growing in that pattern of prayer so that we can spend longer and larger blocks of prayer uh, like Jesus did, and three, that uh, the centrality of prayer for major moments in our life, not just short-term prayer, not just brief panic prayer, that's part of our prayer life, but whole night in prayer. That's huge. And so Jesus gets away off to the mountain by himself. He spends the whole night in prayer in preparation for what he is about to do. And so when day came, verse 13, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he named as apostles. And then Luke's going to list off the names of the apostles. Let's just make sure we make make some observations here that are helpful to us. Notice disciples and apostles. Oftentimes when we're uh, reading the Bible, we don't make a clear distinction between these two. We think disciples equal apostles, apostles equals disciples. That's just not the case. The two words mean something different. Jesus has lots of disciples, and the number of his disciples has been growing in the Gospels, right? So he has lots of disciples, but he's going to choose 12 apostles. What What's the difference? Well, a disciple in general is somebody who's uh, a follower of Jesus and is learning from him. The word disciple simply means a learner, a student, but more of a doing learner. We'll talk actually more about that here later in chapter 6. So a disciple is somebody who's a follower of and a learner from uh, Jesus. And in a, a formal sense, a disciple could actually be a student of an official rabbi. But an apostle is something a little bit different. The apostle literally is somebody uh, who is sent. It means one sent or one commissioned. And it, uh, an apostle served as an official representative of someone. In this case, they are apostles of King Jesus. They are official ambassadors or official representatives of Jesus himself. That's what an apostle is. And that means that an apostle represents the person and embodies both their mission and their authority. And so, by naming 12 apostles out of the larger group of disciples, these are going to be Jesus' official representatives who are meant to carry forward his message, mission, and come with his authority. And so Jesus names 12 of them. That number 12 should be significant. You should all of a sudden hear echoes uh, in that number 12, right? Like recall the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in choosing 12, Jesus is implicitly suggesting they are like the, re the, the heads of a renewed Israel. They are like Israel being renewed in and through Jesus and his ministry, and they are going to be the official heads of this new Israel. And so 12 apostles named by Jesus Let's uh, follow the list as Luke lists them off here, beginning in verse 14. The first one is Simon, whom he named Peter. So Simon's given name is Simon, son of Jonah. But Jesus gives him a nickname, and that nickname is Peter, and Peter means rock. And so uh, he is Simon Peter, Simon the Rock, and his brother Andrew, whom we met earlier, and James and John. Remember, uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all have a 
fish, fishing cooperative together. So James and John are brothers themselves. They are the sons of Zebedee, and they are fishing partners with Simon and Andrew. Uh, we get Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Matthew is the tax collector Levi of Luke 5, 27 and following. We also have Thomas listed off here, and Thomas becomes known to us as Doubting Thomas because of his response to Jesus' resurrection, where he was like, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see his wounds and touch his his hands and all of that. Um, and so he becomes known to us as Doubting Thomas, but Thomas, we get James, the son of Alphaeus, and another Simon, this Simon is called the Zealot. Zealots uh, were Jewish freedom fighters who fought to overthrow the Romans and were willing to use violence for that. And so if Simon, as it seems, is an actual Zealot, was like prior to coming to Jesus, was a member of the Zealot party, just think about the tension between him and Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector serving the Romans uh, and getting rich off of his service to the Romans. And then you have this, this freedom fighter who wants to overthrow the Romans and is willing to use violence. There could be tension between Simon and Matthew. They're going to have to learn to work that out as uh, apostles of Jesus. We also get Judas the son of James, notice that, not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, but Judas, the son of James, uh, who is probably referred to as Thaddeus in Matthew and Mark's listing of uh, the apostles. And so Judas, the son of James, and then we get Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Iscariot probably refers to his hometown of Cariote. And he becomes the traitor. He's the betrayer. He's the one who's going to hand Jesus over to the authorities. So Jesus chooses the 12 apostles, his 12 official ambassadors or representatives, as he's forming really his kingdom and proclaiming his kingdom mission. And then verse 17 tells us Jesus came down with them. So he had gone up onto a mountain to pray all night. He chose out of his disciples the twelve, and Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled by unclean spirits were cured. Now keep in mind where we're at. Jesus is in Galilee. Galilee is that region um, kind of around the Sea of Galilee that's north of Judea and Jerusalem. And so he mentions a large multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem. That is a southern region, political region, right below Galilee. So uh, Judea and Jerusalem is the south, um, and Jerusalem is the religious capital, the central religious capital for the Jewish people. So you've got a great people that have come from Judea and from Jerusalem. You've got a large group of people that have come from the coastal region, he says, of Tyre and Sidon. That's to the northwest up on the coast. What's significant about that is Tyre and Sidon, that's, that's Gentile territory. That's outside of Israel. And so you have uh, Jews coming from the, you know, the capital area around Jerusalem, and you have apparently people, presumably Gentiles, coming from Tyre and Sidon. That's one of the significant things about Jesus' area here. 
particularly in northern Galilee, is it's open to different groups of people from different regions and different areas, and that's significant for Jesus' ministry. So you have this large crowd of people, Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' newly appointed apostles in this crowd. Uh, and all the people were trying to touch him, verse 19, because power was coming from him and healing them all. And so you have this crowd of people, Jesus teaching, people are coming to be healed, power is coming from Jesus, and people are being healed. Now, this, these handful of verses we've just looked at, this is the introduction to Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And the question is, is this the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel? In Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount takes up chapters 5, 6, and 7. Here, it takes up just a handful of verses in Luke chapter 6, and scholars have wrestled with, is this the same sermon? And there are many similarities and many differences between the two. Some of the similarities are this, that the general content is the same. Although there are significant differences that we'll point out here in a second, the basic content is similar. There are some similarities there. Both begin with Beatitudes, and they end with an illustration of two builders and the, the, the foundations on which they build their house. Both address disciples and large crowds. And so there are some similarities in these two uh, versions of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet there are some significant differences. Matthew's is much longer, right? Three chapters as opposed to 29 verses. Luke has nothing to say about the Old Testament law, whereas Matthew has an entire section on that, right? Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and he's interacting with various interpretations of the Old Testament law from his Jewish context. Luke has nothing about that. Now, Matthew interacts with issues of traditional Jewish piety in Matthew chapter 6, where he says that beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be noticed by them. And then he lists off traditional Jewish piety about almsgiving and fasting and praying. And Luke has none of that. Um, and even to be attitudes are different. Uh, Luke's Beatitudes, like Matthew, is blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke is just blessed are the poor. So there's some differences there. And Luke includes woes, not just blessings. The Beatitudes in Matthew are all blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. No woes. Luke gives his blessings, but then he also gives some woes. Um, and the timing seems to be different, although I don't know that we can put too much emphasis on that because gospel writers didn't really organize their gospels largely chronologically. They didn't have a strict chronology. So that could be explained that way. So are they the same or are they different? It's not 100% clear. Either Luke only included the material that fit his distinctive emphasis um, or he recorded a version of the sermon preached by Jesus on a different occasion. We preachers do that. We can take the same message, a message we preached on one occasion, and adjust it and tweak it for a different occasion. And perhaps that's what we have here. Either way, in both Matthew and Luke, the sermon communicates some of the values of Jesus' kingdom. Um, in fact, some of the stuff that's recorded in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount that doesn't show up here in Luke chapter 6 
does show up elsewhere in Luke's gospel because it's central to the values of Jesus' kingdom. And so either way, um, Luke is communicating the values of Jesus' kingdom and calling his disciples then and now to live a radically different way in the world. The differences between the two do communicate two different themes. In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, the theme revolves around the idea of surpassing righteousness. Matthew says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel seems to uh, really explicate what it looks like to have surpassing righteousness. In Luke, uh, the teaching here in Luke chapter 6 is going to revolve around becoming a genuinely good person who routinely does or produces good in their life. The, the central image for that will be a good tree. And so their, their themes are not exactly the same. And so I tend to think that Luke is offering uh, a, a different version of the Sermon on the Mount preached on a different occasion. It's just not 100% clear. Um, all right, so here we have the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you a quick overview of that as we wrap up this section. And in our next session, we will begin looking at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, what sometimes is called the Sermon on the Plain, since he comes down from the mountain and stands on a flat place. So in Luke's sermon, it looks like this. You get blessings and woes, Luke 6, 20 through 26. Then you get loving your enemies and doing good, 6, 27 through 36. Then you get a little section about judging versus having a generous spirit, 37 and 38 blind guides and good trees that really flow out of that section on judging and a generous spirit. So blind guides and good trees in 639 through 45. And then the sermon ends with wise and foolish builders in 646 through 49. That's sort of the various sections of Luke's record of the sermon. Think of it like this. Here's Jesus with this large crowd from all over the place. And as a part of that crowd, you have disciples, people who have been following Jesus and listening to him and are eager to learn from him how to understand God's way and live their life God's way. And then even narrow down further, you have Jesus' newly appointed apostles before him. And Jesus, in that context and to that audience, sets forth some of the core values of his kingdom to cast a vision for what really matters to him. And that's why it's so important that we listen to this section of Luke's gospel, because this is some of Jesus' central teaching. This is some of the core values of his kingdom. Here's some things that really matter to Jesus.